Greetings, Creeps, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Slashings Podcast. I'm your host, JR, and this is where we discuss horror's influence from the silver screen and beyond. I'm recording this intro on Saturday, May 23rd, and the following interview was recorded on Tuesday, May 12th. Horror literature was one of my first entry points into the genre. Finding books and 100% judging them on their covers to find the grossest stories of the macabre my feeble little mind could handle was a frequent occurrence at bookshops for me. I jumped in as many kids do with goosebumps and scary stories to tell in the dark. Now, while the subject matter was certainly creepy, it was really the cover illustrations that pulled me in. Between Goosebumps, Tim Jacobus, and Stephen Gamble's haunting pieces for scary stories, those were the best pieces of bait to lure me into these books. And the love of great cover art blossomed from there, be it Linda Fenimore's cover for Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, or Danny Flynn's art for Joe R. Lansdale's The Drive-In, it was clear to me that cover art held power. There is no one more immediately aware of this than my guest for today's episode, Grady Hendrix. Each of his releases is renowned not only for its content, but the clever art and design made in juncture with his publisher, Quirk Publishing. Not only does he have some of the coolest book art out there, seriously, if you haven't seen the designs for Horror Store or the paperback for My Best Friend's Exorcism, please go check it out. Seriously, pause this. I'll wait. But his compendium on horror novel cover art, Paperbacks from Hell, is a love letter to the era of crazy horror illustrations that helped open the door for those like me into the realm of horror literature in the form of pulpy, lurid, comic-y, sometimes cheesy covers. So here's my salute to horror literature art. This interview was recorded remotely, so there's a little bit of distorted sound, but trust me, it's worth it. Alright, welcome to this week's episode of the Slashings Podcast. I'm joined by Grady Hendricks, who's a celebrated author of multiple different horror novels, as well as short stories, and a writer of two different films that have come out recently, including both Mohawk and Satanic Panic. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And it's neat that we're recording today, because it's also the release of your first episode of your podcast, The Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. Yeah, you know, like everyone else, I've got a podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm late to this party. Um, but I just, you know, it's funny. I was going to do a book tour for Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires because it came out on April 7th. And I don't know, man, authors are making this big distinction. Like my book tour got postponed. Mine got canceled. It got shot <laughs> in the head like a rabid dog. And um, so one of the things I really like doing book tour stuff. Like I like mm -hmm. going on the road and I do these really dumb one person shows for each book. And I was going to do one about vampires for this one. And I had all this material sitting there and I've done a little bit of live stuff with the virtual events and I've been doing a lot of virtual events and I've tried to do the material, but it doesn't come across the way I want it to when it's live. Like I want sound effects. If I can't have slides, if I can't have visuals, if I can't have my dumb face gurning at you, I want sound effects. I want music. I want all that stuff. So um, I decided to just sort of rough together a podcast. And, um, you know, my, my audio quality may not be the greatest, but it's got a lot of heart. I thought it sounded amazing. Like it sounds like oh, good. Every, okay. other, <laughs> every other podcast that's coming out now, it's, it sounds really good. And you have a, even have some audio production effects added in and some music tailored to it. So it's, I thought it was really good. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to do this like, um, you know, I was thinking about homeschool. And so I'm trying to structure it around teaching people dumb stuff. And, um, and so the first one's about vampire geography. The first season's all going to be vampires because of the book. Mm -hmm. So it's like um, the first one's vampire geography, like where vampires come from and all the dumb folk legends about them. Then the one I'm just doing the editing on now that'll be out next week is on uh, vampire history. So it's like from the first 
vampire report that's validated to the very last vampire that got officially staked. Um, and then after that, it is going to be language arts, which is what they call English now. And um, that is going to be all about 1897 because that was when, well, it's going to be about Dracula coming out in 1897 because Dracula really is like, it pulls together a bunch of weird vampire stuff having to do with class and blood and women and sex and all this stuff. And it really cast a shadow over the entire 20th century sort of depiction of vampires. But also the other big kahuna of vampire fiction is Carmilla, mm-hmm. which came out about 15 or 20 years before Dracula. And so I'm going to talk about Carmilla and Dracula because that's every sexy lesbian lady vampire comes out of Carmilla and every like, you know, count comes out of uh, Dracula. But there's also this great book that was written in 1897 by Florence Marriott called Blood of the Vampire. It's, I also want to talk about, because it's about my favorite kind of vampire, which is the psychic vampire. Mm-hmm. And it's just essentially this like total manic pixie dream girl who's like, oh my God, so pleased to meet you. How are you? Oh my God, I'm so excited to see you guys. Can I hang out? Can I have dinner with you? Can I just sleep over? Can I sleep on your floor? And like, she won't leave people alone. And she's so exhausting. They just get more and more and more tired and eventually they die. She's just too exhausting. But it has all this crazy stuff in it about race and all these weird Victorian ideas about like um, fetal impression. Like if you're pregnant and you see a monkey and it scares you, your baby will look like a monkey. Like, so it's all this like just crazy bogus Victorian science. And I love the Victorian era. I love the 19th century. But anyway, and a lot of like really, really great thinkers came out of there, Freud and Darwin and all these people, but also like a lot of like great thinkers also had a lot of really dumb ideas. Like Louis Agassiz, who was like one of the most famous scientists of the 19th century, like Harvard has buildings named after him. And he did all this amazing stuff, but he also like thought that skull size was an indicator of species. And so he measured a bunch of black people's skulls and was like, hmm, clearly a separate species, probably descended from, I don't know, another planet. And so it's just like, you had these really smart people, but they had all these blind spots about gender and race and sex, and they just totally warped their idea of the world. So, you know, on the one hand, they're like super smart. And on the other hand, their pants are falling down in public. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting to hear you tie in, obviously, the crazy research you've done to that end of it. But with just the numerous different versions of vampirism that we've had over however many years since it was first like in, in its way through mythology because realistically you can talk about any other version of them as long as they're they're bloodsuckers because it seems to be the only real yeah. underlying core of what a vampire is yeah i mean you know it's interesting like going back to like old folklore it's like i mean they didn't even really expressly sucked blood but they did because they always like they would strangle people and throttle them but like mm-hmm. that's really just an attack on your neck but they'd always be found full of fresh blood and you know, there's this interesting thing that I didn't really get into with the podcast, but it does sound crazy, right? You read all these accounts of people and they're like, we went to the graveyard and dug up eight corpses and one of them wasn't rotten enough and it had blood inside of it. Yeah. So it's a vampire. (laughs) So we chopped off its head and drove a stake through its heart to hold it on the ground and then we burned it. And you're like, whoa, that's extreme. But, you know, when you take in the fact that you know, corpses all rot at different rates and there's different environmental things and, you know, they they keep it from rotting. And also some corpses stay full of liquid blood for a while. Some still grow hair and fingernails. Some grow less, some grow more. And you start thinking about it and really 
before we got super sophisticated with science, and I would even say up until the end of the 19th century, like the turn of the 20th century, what let you know someone was dead? Like, you know, I mean, generally the way to play it safe was you look to see if they were rotting. If they were rotting, they're dead. They're dead. Mm -hmm. But if they're just really (laughs) cold and they're holding still and you don't hear a heartbeat, there were accounts of people, you know, it could be a coma, it could be any number of things. And you realize that these guys wanted to play it safe. Putrefaction was the only sure sign of death for these guys. And it's interesting when you think about it now, because you're like, well, yeah, where is death sort of is this twilight zone because we've got people on ventilators. We've got people who are brain dead or in a comatose state. And you realize even now, like every few years, there'll be some case in the news about the family says this woman is dead and they would like to take her off her life support. And her husband says, she's not, she's alive. And doctors say she's dead. And you know, the, the idea of what's dead even today, we're still debating, you know, is a fetus alive? How alive? When does it become alive? When, like everyone, when life begins and life ends are still kind of a little bit twilight zones. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of understand with a lot less equipment at their disposal, someone in the 19th century is like, if it's not rotten, it's not dead. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting way to think about trying to identify what they would have seen as a vampire that I never really put that much thought into it but obviously with your in-depth research you do for every project it's picking up so many different looking under so many different rocks and finding so many different aspects of it it's really cool or you could say on another hand your in-depth wasting of your life <laughs> no I, I, <laughs> it's like as i sit here reading these like you know 19th century tracks on vampires in like romania i'm like what am i doing <laughs> like that's I could, I could be helping people but you're dist- you are you absolutely are because you're taking that and distilling it into <laughs> these novels that are helping us to get kind of through this difficult time it's it's something to for us to occupy our our brains and time with and i personally really appreciate that oh thanks i agree my mother would have liked me to be a doctor but i appreciate it thank you <laughs> i shouldn't disagree with your mother but i'm glad you're not a doctor and a horror writer because <laughs> <laughs> i'd be a terrible doctor <laughs> Well, no, you would just spend too long researching it and the patient would die. It's fine. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, well, he's not rotten. Are we sure he's dead? (laughs) Um, Take him home. (laughs) You had mentioned that this was initially part of your tour that you were going to do for the book. And I was lucky enough to see one of the paperbacks from Hell Presentations a few years ago. Oh, which one? Uh, the one up in Portland, Maine, run by the uh, Michelle yes, from the Green the Hand. Green Hand. Yes, 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 yes. First off, dude, you guys are so lucky. Green Hand is an amazing bookstore. Mm-hmm. It's that one of my place is incredible. Favorites. Yeah, and there's nothing like it in New York, which is really bums me out. And Michelle, who runs it, has been doing such a good job for years. And even now, with everything being shut down, she's been crazy busy sending out ridiculous numbers of orders to people. I'm actually in communication with her now to get her to do an episode soon, too. So hopefully that'll pan out. Oh man, tell her I said hi because she's great. And she actually um, held for me uh, the story, the novelization of the made for TV movie starring Linda Blair and Mark Hamill, the story of Sarah, an alcoholic, Sarah T, I think, which is in a great TV movie and a fabulous novelization. So I owe her. <laughs> and she's writing a book right now about Bigfoot in Maine. And I didn't realize there was a history of Bigfoot in Maine. Yeah, last time I was there, she because I was talking to her about the paperback show, and she had mentioned that she was in communication with you about cryptozoology in general. 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I've got all these books I want to write and it's just like, I just, you know, it's like, I've got a hit list. I'm sort of like one of those, like, <laughs> I, I'm like the girl who got like, you know, acid thrown in her face at prom. And I've come back 25 years later with a list of everyone on the homecoming committee and I'm going to murder <laughs> them one by one, except instead of people, their books. And so I've got a Bigfoot book that I really want to write, but it's, it's way, it's like four or five books down the road. So now I need to see Mary Lou from Prom Night 2 fighting Bigfoot. If I don't get that movie before I die, what's the point? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I've been reading through a couple of the other like AMAs and stuff you've done recently, and you've announced that you're, not announced, but you've said that one of the books you've been working on a lot is a slasher-themed book now? Yeah, and I can't say anything about it just because they're going to make an announcement soon. But uh, yeah, it is slasher-themed. And, you know, it's funny. It's um, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and so those were the movies I saw, right? Mm-hmm. And I was, a, was never a huge slasher fan, but I realized that like, there's there's a really complicated, before, I guess, okay, sorry, I'm saying this poorly. You're good. I feel like in the 70s and 80s, people were just figuring out horror movies. And in the 70s, they were made for adults. And in the 80s, they started getting made for kids again with slashers mm-hmm. and things like that. And I feel like people were figuring out what the rules were. Like, Reanimator was an R-rated movie, but Stuart Gordon had no doubt that teenagers were his audience for that movie. And that movie has stuff that wouldn't pass muster today like the famous head scene and so people were still figuring out the rules so a lot of wonky stuff got through and i feel like if you grew up in those eras you have this complicated relationship with horror because you're off you're a dude or you're a girl and you're watching movies lot lots of times about a woman being victimized or terrorized by some guy and like you're identifying with the girl but you've got jason and michael as sort of these pop culture icons like you know but the final girl's a pop culture icon too and there's this really just complicated history of relationship between fandom and violence and gender Mm -hmm. and i wanted to write a book that's sort of like I just sort of wanted to bask in that a little bit and try to make sense of it for myself. Um, and I get a little woo-woo. It's weird. It's sort of like, <laughs> it's it's one of these books that, that I've been working on for a long time. And um, it's uh, even before I wrote We Sold Our Souls, I had a draft of this book. And um, I just keep working on it and finally got it right. So I hope got it right. Maybe people hate it. I don't know. I don't expect to hate it. <laughs> Let's talk We Sold Our Souls for a second, because that was the book sure. that came out prior to the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which I keep mixing up whether it's slaying vampires or vampire slaying. Every time I say it, I get it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's like, it's, it's like the Southern Vampires Guide to Book Clubs. I think that's the <laughs> official title. I'm fine with that. Um, but in We Sold Our Souls, you do a lot of research into the metal community, and metal and horror has had such like a good pairing since they pretty much either existed. Um, were you a big fan of like the metal scene prior to researching and writing that book? No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I picked metal because I wanted to write a book about people who'd been sort of forgotten and hated. Uh, you know, just sort of like the the 40-year-old who still has a band and still plays on the weekends or who gave up on the band. You know, but like that's where their heart is and everyone kind of feels sorry for them. I mean, in a way, the um, the Simon Pegg, Nick, Frost, Nick Frost, yeah, Nick Frost, um, Edgar Wright movie, uh, The End of the, the World's End, had mm-hmm. a big influence on it. That that idea of sort of when do you quit? When do you give up? When do you stop? And that's yeah. something I've wrestled with a lot. I mean, I started writing late. I mean, I was in my 40s before I sold a book. And so, and I wanted to write about people who everyone 
had a lot of contempt for. And it would be hard to find a genre of music whose fans are more reviled than metal fans. Like, I feel like, you know, even hip hop is cool. Even though people may think it's dangerous, it's cool. Um, but like metal, like you say you like heavy metal music and it's kind of like you've just said you're an idiot to a lot of people. Like they just will instantly peg you. And it's like saying, you know, um, anyways, it's, but, but I think a lot of people make judgments about people who listen to metal. And so I just didn't know enough about metal. And so it just took me forever to find my way in. And I really, it, two things really helped. And one is that, I sort of found the right song on the right album that was like the one I could listen to over and over. And that was my like gateway into a whole bunch of other stuff. And I discovered much to my embarrassment that I'm like a prog metal fan, which is like, that's not embarrassing at all. Prog rules. I agree, but like it's kind of like when you say that to people, they're a little like some that like metal fans who are like into speed metal and stuff. They're like, oh, huh, nerd. (laughs) Um, But also, metal metal heads are enormously kind and generous like i've rarely met a fandom except for maybe horror that people are so genuinely enthusiastic to share what they love like i have so many bar cocktail napkins or like scraps of paper with drunken handwriting on it from friends or metal heads I know who would like just like we'd get dry and they just like okay you gotta listen to this album and this song and this album and this song and like you know and a friend of mine's married to a guy um who's in a band called uh he runs a band runs a band is a is the lead guitarist in a band sort of his band called Camelot with a K. Camelot and, rules. Uh, yeah. That's and so, stuff, so Tom Youngblood um, is, is sort of someone I know. Uh, his wife was one of my best friends growing up. And uh, I kind of fallen out in touch with her for a little bit. And I got back in touch. And like, Tom was like, so hugely generous, just talking about metal and band, his band and how it works. And, you know, they played New York and at Irving Plaza. And he sort of was like, okay, here's the setup. Here's the breakdown. Here's, and they were just so nice. And, um, so it really, really helped. And like, you know, I mean, there's bands I still listen to continuously now uh, that are sort of have become really part of my life. The one thing I can't do is a few albums have become ones that I listened to so much writing that book. And writing that book was so hard. And it happened in such a dark part of my life that I did like Devin Townsend did this uh, album called Transcendence. I can't listen to it anymore. I listened to that album like 4,000 times writing that book. And like, I love it can't ever listen to it again um but leviathan the mastodon album i listen to that constantly yeah wolves in the throne room i listen to all the time i mean you know it's just stuff i just become part of my playlist and it just wasn't before and i felt like i was really missing out hell yeah i um i don't know if you remember but a couple years ago you did the merrimack book fair and i was the one who brought you the dirt work patch Yes, of course. You were there with your mom, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I still have the dirt work patch. That thing is insane. And it was so amazing <laughs> to get that because it was just really cool to have written something. And it was like magic. It just suddenly like you came out of that crowd with it. It was like, it just conjured up. Like if, <laughs> if I had never seen you or heard from you again, I would have been like, ah, maybe that guy existed. Maybe he didn't. You know, maybe he walked back into a crack in reality. Um, I'm not saying I no, didn't. But yeah, I thought that was amazing. <laughs> I'm glad and I remember you had it. a great battle vest. Yeah, I've got a couple different ones. I've got the horror one that I wear to horror conventions, my doom metal one, and my like horror punk one. <laughs> <laughs> um, couple of things I wanted. Just one silly thing that caught my attention in the Southern Book Club's guide, and I can't imagine that it's actually real. And I'm just overlooking at small details. 
the poverty area was entitled Six Mile. And for whatever mm-hmm. broken reason, my brain jumped to Eminem's song Lose Yourself, which has I a know. random reference to Eight Mile. I'm sorry, a random reference to Salem's Lot about growing up in Eight Mile. Was there any correlation of naming it Six Mile with it being a vampire in a small town? No, but I, I wasn't <laughs> unaware of that. So Charleston, where I'm from, has a lot of town unincorporated townships that are basically named on their mile marker from the town center. Mm-hmm. So, And they're mostly African-American communities. And they're, they're really struggling these days because they want things like you know city services like a sewer Mm -hmm. system and they got a right to that and you know the city's using that as an excuse to well you've got to incorporate as part of the town of mount pleasant now which means you owe your taxes to us and all this and so it's become a huge huge battleground and um but there's a six mile no wait sorry there's a seven mile and there's a five mile but there was no six mile um so i used six mile for that but i totally as soon as i did it i instantly thought of eight mile in the Eminem song and um the Salem's lot reference and all that stuff wasn't sure um it was a happy coincidence (laughs) and in that book specifically you get really really dark like not that your other books don't but there's a lot more I feel like there's almost a little more comedy in the past couple this one kind of hits its dark note and fucking stays there the whole ride through which for a horror fan is amazing was that in for southern book club for southern book club yeah okay yeah that one yeah hit. go ahead sorry no it's okay it just it hit it dark it's dark note and it kind of stayed there throughout the novel the moments of levity were much fewer and far between and the number of just gross out scenes the one with the cockroach in particular stands out as just one that turns my stomach in the best possible way yeah that was a really last minute addition to oh. that whole attic sequence was like I was just, some pieces were floating around and not coming together. And I was like, oh, wait, I got it. Like, and so it all sort of slammed together quickly. Um, And then that roach scene was just like, you know, we had an attic like that and it was more cluttered, but it was disgusting. And like (laughs) that, I was up there once and a roach fell in my hair. And I was just like, I've always remembered how repulsive that was. Um, Because like a roach isn't going to hurt you really. Like, you know, but I just remember being so desperate to get it off my hair, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You know, one of the things about this book is, you know, it's from a parent's point of view. Mm -hmm. And so as a parent, um, the thing you want to make, like the minimum job of parenting is to keep your kids safe. Like you want them to go to a good school. You want them to be fulfilled and have a nice life, but really you want them to stay alive. And so the stakes were super high in this book. And, you know, teenage friendship runs hot, but it runs a little shallow. Like, my friends in high school saved my life. But, like, you know, some of them I never saw again after that. And, like, they saved my life. But if I had been in real danger, I'm not sure what they could have done. As an adult, your friends, some of them you may not be people you love hanging out with, but they're friends. You sort of, they're part of your life. And they're the people, because the stakes are higher, who do literally save your life. They're the ones you drop your kids with when you've got to take someone to the hospital. They're the ones who might bail you out financially. They're the ones who are there when your kids get sick, you know, when you're in a car accident. Like, And so because the stakes were so much higher and there was so much more to lose, I think the tones is, is darker. That's fair. Uh, you said stakes twice and didn't once take the vampire pun, and I'm really proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> I am a king of missed opportunities. But it's it's like what you said in the in the introduction to the book, um, where best friends exorcism was from the teenager's perspective, and this was definitely more from the parents' one, which is interesting to me personally because 
like we were both at that convention, my mom is who got me into horror and horror novels. And so reading one from that teenage perspective, like when she kind of got me into it versus reading it from her perspective when I was reading it, it was really neat to see it from both lenses. Yeah. What books did she get you into? Like what were the first ones she was passing along? Well, growing up, she always had the, her bookshelf was full of everything Stephen King that ever came out that she had been reading since high school, the VC Andrews ones as well. And then- Oh, sure. And then over time, she just added like Peter Straub. And then when Joe Hill started writing his stuff too, she was just always kind of the gateway point for that sort of, and Thomas Harris, just like the the bigger ones at that time, just ones that made sense for her to be into, which is weird because she's not a big horror movie person, but loves horror and literature. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to me. Like, I remember the first time I saw a Stephen King book and it was a friend of mine's mom was reading Christine. Mm -hmm. And it's weird to me. And like, I inherited... I think it was different seasons, the mass market paperback, or it might've been night shift, but I think it was different seasons for my older sister when she went away to college. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. I don't recall any experiences like that with friends, dads, or or guys. Like horror always came to me passed along by women. And I find That's so really many people point. have stories like yours that their mom was a big King fan or a big VC Andrews fan. It's really strange to me, you know, because horror has this reputation of being a guy's genre, but you find the like transmission, the disease vector comes through moms. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a really good point. And I've always made the, like, to me, horror has always been a woman's genre, starting from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and going from there. But you're right. Like yeah. the, the, the pulpy 70s and 80s movies always had that, oh, it's a dude's movie. And I think that's just because like meathead dudes are making it for other meathead dudes. Not to say there weren't good movies back then right. that came out, but a lot of them are, how many bodies can I put? How many of them can be naked? How much blood can I put in this movie? Yeah. Well, and also, you know, listen, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, I don't know why I said, it. listen, you, listen. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's funny because like film production, I mean, it's, it's, you know, women were largely making the movies before people realized there was money in them. And then the dudes kind of took over in the teens and twenties, mostly the twenties. And, film production has always been very male dominated. And so, you know, now that's changing some, but, you know, slowly, but publishing is always, well, not always, but in recent years has been very female dominated. Like I think the last survey was like 77% of jobs in publishing are held by women. Um, And so you you wonder like what that has to do with what authors and what movies are, are coming out and what, what's being said, like, you know, I remember there's that famous story about Stephen King's manuscript of um, Carrie getting passed around. Was it Doubleday? I think it was his first publisher. Mm-hmm. I think it was Doubleday. I'm not 100% so. sure. But, um, and, and it was getting passed around by the secretaries. And that's when his editor was like, oh, this actually is maybe a movie or a book that might have some legs. Like we should maybe do a little extra for this because it was getting such a huge readership from the women in the office. And so I, I just wonder, you look at movies mostly made by guys or horror movies mostly made by guys. And then you look at books mostly made by women and where women seem to have more of a voice I don't know. It just, it would be really interesting. I haven't seen a lot about that. And maybe I'm just speculating out my butt, which I do a lot. (laughs) But I mean, there are still good and successful female directors that are coming out now. In particular, I'm thinking of Chelsea Stardust who did um, Satanic Panic. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting to me how much of Satanic Panic, even though I read it, is Chelsea. Like how much of it looks and feels and resonates with her sensibility, even though minute to minute on the set, 
you wouldn't see that, right? You'd see her being like, oh crap, I don't know where to put that. Or, oh, that costume screwed up. We got to get a new one. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, on these low budget movies, um, you know, it's not like Stanley Kubrick being like, that light is two degrees too hot. And here's the detailed blueprints. You mostly see the director dealing with a million different moment to moment disasters mm-hmm. you know um it's raining and you need to be outside this actor won't say these lines this prop keeps falling apart none of it looks aesthetic none of it looks artistic you just feel like they're managing a slow motion car accident and, and that's certainly how it felt to see chelsea but then you see the finish and you're like god this is like this isn't directing this is just chaos and then you see the finished product and you're like for somehow the whole movie feels like Chelsea's aesthetic. It feels like her product. Even though I wrote every word of that and they shot everything I wrote, they didn't change it. Mm -hmm. It's her movie. It feels like her and her sensibility. And so I don't know how that happens because to me, it looks like madness. So it's this weird alchemy that I don't quite get. And it it, it did. It worked so well. It does have her kind of flavor and taste all over it. And I'm really happy to see that like Fangoria picked it up and ran with it and they promoted the living shit out of it. And I don't know obviously how well it did. I have the Blu-ray sitting over on my shelf and I'm hoping it did well because I really want to see more from both her directing, her director side of it and your co-writing side of it. Because you co-wrote that with um... Ted Gagan. Thank you, Ted Gagan, who you also did Mohawk with, right? Yeah, and he'd done We Are Still Here. And, you know, I think Ted has a project in the works somewhere. I mean, I think two. Chelsea, I know, has a couple of things in the works. And I've definitely got a few gigs I'm working on right now. So there will be more, like (laughs) it or not. We're going to force our way into people's eye holes. (laughs) Well, I like it. I can accept that through both the eye holes of the movie and as well as other novels coming out. Um, So right now, obviously, the big promotion is for... Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Did I say it in the right order? Yeah, I did. It was SV. That's how I need to keep remembering it. Um, and your take of the vampire in that is both great and disgusting. With this, I don't want to get super spoily into the book. Sure. I try to be vague about it. But the separation of like his mandible and the proboscis, just you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, you know, I just, that's always been this like gross image. And when I saw, actually, there's an image that's similar. I think in, I think it's in, um, Blade 2. And when I saw that, I was like, yes, I've been thinking about that for years, like having this, like, like because I really like the idea of a human face. And I think it's something I may have picked up from like Clive Barker back in the 80s, reading him when I was a kid. This idea that the human body is so mutable and that the more you twist it and bend it, the more disgusting it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, is unsettling it gets i shouldn't say disgusting more unsettling it gets <laughs> and um and so yeah so i really wanted this idea that like the human face for this guy had just become like an accessory it was almost like protective coloration mm-hmm. for his like feeding proboscis which is just disgusting it's something we associate with insects and like sea life not mammals mm-hmm. and it to that point, he is supposed to be sort of an insect in it, which is why I, I feel like you include a lot with like the fleas and the roaches and just the, the vermin that they live with. I know it's always been a staple of vampires as far back as like Nosferatu associated with the rats and coming over with the plague and such. Yeah. But just including that insect element to him was just nursy in the best possible way. 
<laughs> well, yeah, thanks. And I also think that, you know, it's something I saw growing up because that area in South Carolina is really humid and it's on the water. And mm-hmm. so everyone's house was just so, everyone's clothes were just right. Everything was nice. And there was a real emphasis on pretty, but the world kept getting in the way. Salt kept corroding your car's undercarriage. Roaches kept getting in the house, like earwigs. And so there just was constant encroachment from nature, you know, just nibbling around the edges. And you had based both this one and my best friend's exorcism in the same neighborhood-ish, right? Oh, the, the same neighborhood, yeah. yeah I like, mean, like to yeah. a T, just a, a decade apart. Yeah, exactly. And I, even like, like, yeah, basically roughly a decade, yeah. I mean, like Patricia's house is like a door down from the okay. Lang's house in my best friend's exorcism. Um, I, and there's a few subtle shout outs, but yeah, I, it, that's the neighborhood I grew up in. And so I feel really comfortable writing about it. I know it. Um, and I know the people pretty well, mm-hmm. as much as you can know other people. And I knew this was going to have a lot of stuff about women and guys and race. And I wanted to make sure that what I was writing was something I had seen and lived because at the end of the day, I had to make sure it was true from my point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, like I couldn't write a black character from their point of view. I don't know their point of view really, but I know Patricia's point of view because I shared a house with someone like Patricia for a long time. And I've got a pretty good idea of what it is. And I can write what an African-American woman is like from her point of view. So, you know, it's from, from Patricia's point of view. So mm-hmm. it's something I wanted to make sure I was getting right. So I want to make sure I was set somewhere I would really knew well. Because there has been a little bit of that feedback in some of the reviews that come out, but I feel like with the comment you just made as well, you've really handled it from the best perspective of, I don't know that I can't write that. And that really resonates because it's not, I, I don't think... I don't think the arguments are really founded because you wrote it from the perspectives you did know. You weren't bullshitting. It was real from what you right. saw. And, yeah, and one of the things that I had a little bit of concern about and um, was that, uh, listen, the attitudes people had in South Carolina, like people like Patricia, you know, upper middle class, nice white ladies, that they had towards African-American people and towards people who had less money than them were not attitudes that would fly today. Mm-hmm. But I had to that's the point of view of the character. And I wasn't going to white, uh, like whitewash it. I wasn't going to sort of like pretty it up. I mean, that's what it was like. Listen, I am deeply embarrassed that when I was a kid, our favorite game to play when at Sunday school, when we got to go outside was smear the queer where someone would throw a football and the person who caught it was the queer and everyone would try to tackle them. Um, we didn't hate gay people. We were just tremendously insensitive and ignorant, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of those things that, that was of the time and the place, and I'm not going to pretend it was otherwise. Uh, and I get it. Some people really don't like that, and that's totally legit. Like, mm-hmm. that is completely valid. Especially from modern understanding and modern views, that is insensitive and unfair. To say it wasn't there is way more wrong than to put it into a, not a historical novel, but a novel from that, t- from that time period. Yeah. And, you know, the fact is, I don't want to write a book set in 1988 that's not true to 1988. Mm -hmm. I also don't want to write a book with no Black characters in it. I don't want to write a book with no women in it or no Mm -hmm. men. Like, you've got to sort of like, um, you've got to stretch a little if you're writing a book and really make sure that you're 
trying to get, you know, trying to be as sensitive as you can. And for me, it's, it's trying to stay true. I mean, that's the world I see around me. It has rich people in it. It has poor people in it. It has black and Asian and people with disabilities and, you know, people who are developmentally different and all that stuff in it. And so the challenge for me is writing about it in a way that feels honest Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and that's the best I can do. And I think you did a really good job with it. And I think oh, most thanks. of the reviews point, uh, paint that same picture as well, that you write such really strong and well-defined women characters in it. And you write the characters that you know and can write from your perspective and did such a good job with it from my personal oh, opinion. thanks. Yeah. From one <laughs> white guy to another. Thank you. <laughs> That's the best I Well can done, offer. sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> no, exactly. I do appreciate it. I just realized the irony there. Yeah, it's there, but we're still... With a lot of what you're writing, you're opening the door to let other people into the space and let more people work with it and work with horror fiction. I think if you sure. were, I think writing books all from the one white man's perspective and not including anything else, that's all you're going to get from more creativity. The right. next major female writer reads your book and think, oh, I belong in this. I can write, I can write my own story and do my own thing from here. I think that's really important to have that voice. Yeah, and you know, for me... I mean, two things. One is that, um, uh, no, just one thing. Uh, Really, for me, the argument for diversity, like, I'm not, I I don't pass any laws. I don't control any gates. I'm not an editor. I'm not a film producer or financer. I'm not, you know, in charge of much. I'm in charge of my own tiny little kingdom that you can mostly see right now. It's about nine foot by eight foot. Um, So for me, the argument for diversity isn't about morality or legality or anything. For me, the argument for diversity is I want new stories. Mm -hmm. Like I want everyone to come into horror and play with these toys I've seen and to bring new things. I've heard what white dudes have to say about vampires. I want to hear, you know, I want to read the great South Asian vampire book set in Kentucky. I want to read, you know, know, um, someone, uh, a, a person who has quadriplegia's take on the mad scientist novel. I want to read a book by, um, you know, by an African-American gay woman from Nantucket. Like, I want those people's stories because those mm-hmm. people's stories are going to be things I haven't seen before. And I crave new stuff, new points of view, new perspectives. That's what keeps horror fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes I'll really despair. I'll just feel like, oh, my God, it's the same stuff over and over. And then something will come out of the blue. I'll read something like Stephen Graham Jones' Mongrels. Or I'll read something like Gwendolyn Keist's uh, The Eight People Who Murdered Me. Or I'll read something like even John Payton's Cook, Cook's Out for Blood. And I'll think, oh, that's what I was looking for. That, that person who's bringing their life with them to this genre I love. Um, that's, that's what I want to read. You know, I was really, really dubious about Watchmen, the TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the comic. I, you know, it's got some issues and things and it. I'm not sure the parts of it. I love still are not the parts I loved when it came out in the eighties, mm-hmm. but seeing what they did with that. So fucking good. Was so great. And it's so honored the source material and yet critiqued the source material. And, you know, it's interesting. My nephew is going to school for journalism right now. And, um, and he basically, he says it's not what inspired it, but 
he did an, a research project on the massacre, the real life massacre that kicks off the entire Watchmen series. And I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. It's the end of a long day right now. I can't remember the exact <laughs> name. And, um, but, and that was from Watchmen. I'm sorry. He watched it and he's just pretending he didn't. Um, but, and that's so great. It's making, it's bringing this stuff, this, these pieces of American history back into the conversation mm-hmm. and they're important, you know? Um, you know, it's been, I haven't seen horror, except for maybe Toni Morrison's Beloved and a few other mm-hmm. things more obl- oblique. I haven't seen much horror fiction deal with r- slavery, which is a huge legacy of horror in America, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I want to see that. I, I want to see an African-American writer forcing people to do it. I mean, Colin Whitehead's uh, Underground Railway did, but... I found that book hard to read. Literally, there was something almost too metaphorical about it for me. I, I appreciated it and admired it, but I didn't connect with it um, the way I wanted to. Um, the way I connected with, you know, Victor Laval doing Lovecraft and the Ballad of Black Tom, mm-hmm. that felt visceral to me and that felt personal and that felt like it had some blood on it. Um, the Underground Railroad just, it, it felt too symbolic to me um, for me to really invest in it fully. Beloved, that book's got blood all over it. And it's a great haunted house book where the haunted house just happens to be an entire country. Um, <laughs> so yeah, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm going on and on. And no, you're good. I appreciate it. I, I haven't heard of Beloved. So that's next on my two fine list and two Inhale oh, it's amazing. I mean, I really feel like Beloved and Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson are sort of the two monumental horror novels of the 20th century. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll argue with people on some and go back, but those are the two big ones mm-hmm. to me. I mean, Hill House has been influential since its release. Like everything that's ever come out has been at least loosely referential to Hill House. Oh, yeah, I Absolutely. Think. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, even to a sm- lesser extent, I think we've always lived in the castle. You know, those mm-hmm. idea of that unreliable first person narrator with sort of a cold blooded voice who's almost chilly and, and disturbing in the lack, in the way she others other human beings. Like she looks at the townspeople almost like they're animals mm-hmm. and, and yet is scared of them. And in that kind of voice is something I find in horror a lot. Like you see it in Ken Greenhall's writing. Like you read the beginning of his book, Elizabeth, um, and you really hear echoes of we've always lived in the castle. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you reading now for modern horror fiction that's been coming out? I'm not reading a lot of modern stuff. A lot of okay. stuff I read is older. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I read the the advanced copy of Paul Tremblay's uh, Survivor Song, which mm-hmm. is his plague novel that's coming out in July, which I liked it. I mean, I re- it was weird to read it right now. And I'll be interested to see how it's received, but it mm-hmm. does have just a really, really well done... Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but a well done bit of impromptu surgery that you spend the entire book dreading and anticipating and it delivers on that really well. And then Stephen Graham Jones really, which is why I keep bringing him up, but I just finished a couple of weeks ago, The Only Good Indians, which is his new book, which it's great. I mean, I liked Mongrels, but this is the scope of Mongrels, but, um, it's more rooted in the individual characters. And there's some moments where he does some experimental stuff that I was like, I don't know how I'm feeling about this. And then it comes back around to these point of view characters. And it's so, I mean, you're so in their dirty blue jeans. Um, And that's a book I really, really loved a lot. Um, 
Stephen Stephen makes me very irritated as a writer just because I feel like he's very he does something I like to do which is just being very spot on with really specific telling physical details mm-hmm. um, and and it annoys me. Um, so the, that's the stuff I've read. Oh, and I, I'm actually uh, just wrapping up all Makatsu's The Deep, which is. It's a horror novel, but I found it really nice escapism. I mean, it's about the ocean and liners and voyages. It ties into the Titanic a little bit. Um, and I kind of wanted that kind of escapism right now, so which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and I just finished Scott Poole's um, Wasteland, which is his nonfiction book about sort of the impact World War I had on horror. And his his feeling is, you know, World War One was the seminal event for 20th century horror, and he really makes that case um, really in a in a way that I found really compelling. It's sort of I feel dumb saying this about a nonfiction book, but I kind of couldn't put it down. I was really blown away. Oh, that's really cool! To check that one out too. You give me so much to read. I'm so excited. <laughs> homework. Yeah. Right. Well, it ties right back into your homeschool. <laughs> exactly. So this season is obviously based on vampires, based on the research you've done for your most recent book. Um, with it just coming out and you recording it and going as you go, do you think you'll do more seasons with other focuses? Like, you, oh. obviously you've dipped into, not dipped into, you've explored exorcisms, you've explored haunted stores slash haunted houses, selling your soul. Are we expecting more seasons of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I Hell think yeah. what's going to happen, because I've got to do it around my uh, writing schedule. Mm-hmm. So I think this season's probably going to be 12 episodes. Nice. Um, and then it's going to wrap up for a few months while I start working on my next book. And then when that's done, I will probably be doing another episode. And I'll, I'm not sure it'll be based on the next book, but it'll be around there. But yeah, I mean, I've got so much material to draw from. Um mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's either going to be about um, killer toys and dolls and puppets or I don't know, actually, but I kind of like discovering it as I go. Yeah. So yeah, definitely be more seasons, more subject matter. Um, I just, I just don't know what they're going to be yet. Excellent. Well, do you think will McMansions of the damned ever see the light of day? No, that's, you know, it's funny. I know it's, it's interesting. The, the novel version of it, I've cannibalized bits and pieces of it for things. And I wrote a screenplay that was really real. Oh, that's actually something I never thought about. I wrote a really radically different book, uh, or sorry, screenplay um, that started out as a book. And I realized it was more of a screenplay um, that I stole the title for it, Mansions of the Damned and Used, but it's a vampire thing. And actually that's where I started rethinking vampires and even though they're supernatural in that and james harris and southern book club is not supernatural at all it had the same kind of feeding um technique and it had the same kind of um uh mouth kind of apparatus proboscis i didn't even think about that but yeah i totally stole from myself sure (laughs) that's a good source to steal from what oh and jesus it even has a bug scene holy crap i didn't even realize that god i'm freaking plagiarist just sitting there buzzing around the gray matter. Yeah, exactly. Now, how do you know when you're writing something if it's going to become, or whether it's meant to be a screenplay or a story? Um, or a novel, rather. Yeah, generally, uh, books are really interior and screenplays are really exterior. And so it's kind of like who I want to spend more time inside their heads mm-hmm. um, is who winds up in a book. And like Southern Book Club, I really love my childhood like everyone else i am desperately clawing my way back to my womb (laughs) and um notice i didn't say my mother's womb i have claimed it patriarchy (laughs) has seized her womb it is my property 
I'm moving back in, Mom. Um, it's going to be uncomfortable for all of us, but we're going to get through this together. Um, but, uh, you know, I really, is, is, as much as I hated growing up in my hometown and I felt so frustrated and limited by it, I also loved it. And some of the times I felt safest and the most comforted is, is, you know, Saturday afternoons going over to on like in the middle of the summer, going to Alex Shortridge's house to like read his new comic books. Like when I was like eight, that felt so right to me. Uh, I can remember how it smelled and how it looked and how it felt. So I wanted to spend more time there. And I also wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to give a happy ending or a hero moment really to my grandmother who Mm -hmm. lived with us when she had Alzheimer's like Ms. Mary. And I hated it. And it really, she scared me and it was really upsetting. And I always felt bad that I felt that way about her at the end of her life. She didn't deserve that. And I wanted to kind of give her a hero moment that she didn't get at the end of her life in the book. And I also wanted to spend time with these women I'd grown up around and sort of pay a little honor, a homage to them. And, um, and so I wanted to be, I wanted that to be a book. I wanted that to be thick and detailed and interior and lived. Satanic Panic, I wanted to move fast and have that snappy dialogue and that crazy black magic stuff and, and be visceral. You know, I wanted her to fight back. Um, there's a screenplay I'm working on right, or actually I just finished right now, that um, I really want it to be dialogue heavy and move fast and, and be full of action. It all takes place in like 72 hours. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do for me in a book. Books, I want to take place over long periods of time. Um, movies, I like the compressed time. So it's really just kind of the story, what it lends itself to. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a script right now um, under contract that literally takes place, I think in like 55 minutes. Um, yeah, it's crazy. And so like, um, it's, it's weird. It's, um, so I I feel like that for me is a screenplay. Um, and, and, you know, it's like, like Southern book club, that's just a long time period. Can't put that in a screenplay without (laughs) losing a lot of effect. But it, it could not that I like to immediately jump to adaptations. It could make a really good miniseries. Yeah, I mean, it's been optioned for television and that's, you know, it's going to do that. And actually, one of the things I really like about the fact it's been optioned for TV is one thing they're really, I've talked to the producers and one thing they're really committed to is really expanding Mrs. Green's character and and, and some of the other black characters in the story. And they're going to have a writer's room with writers of color and people who can bring that experience and speak from that point of view in a way I can't. And I really am excited about that because that is a part of the story that, I had to acknowledge, but I had to show it from Patricia's point of view because she mm-hmm. is my point of view character. So that's something I'm psyched about. And also there's a ton of world building I did for this. that's not on the page. It's in earlier drafts of the book mm-hmm. that they're going to be able to use, which I'm really psyched about. Awesome. Because anything a vampire novel needs is more flesh for eating. So fleshing it out more, way up there. Exactly. <laughs> um, obviously all of your, this one being less so, but all of your work has been kind of a blend of comedy and horror, which traditionally has... That's a hard mark to hit. Most of the things that come out are neither funny nor scary, but yours seems to do it book by book by book. What are some of your favorite comedy horrors? Oh, well, like, you know, one of the things that blows my mind is that I never realize something's funny until other people are laughing. I mean, it's a little bit like... I've got a little bit of a psychotic break there. I'm like, this funny? Okay, me laugh too. Ha 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 ha. Imitating human. Um, but like 
Return of the Living Dead is a movie I take really, really seriously. I love that movie. And I showed it to a friend of mine. They're like, oh, it's really funny. And I'm like, it is? (laughs) What? (laughs) This seems to me like exactly what would happen in a zombie outbreak in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, So so I'm, but I'm trying to think. Book-wise, I mean, I love John Dies at the end. Is it John Mm -hmm. Dies at the end? I love John Dies at the end. The follow-up I liked, but I felt like, I, I didn't love it the way I liked John. And maybe that's just because by then lots of other people liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that made me sort of like, you know, feisty about it. Um, I think that there's some stuff that has a really dark sense of humor. Um, that's hard. I'm just sort of looking at my book collection here. Um, <laughs> Oh, you know, like, I feel like Clive Barker has a sense of humor that's really mm-hmm. dark that comes across, and especially in Books of Blood, Yattering and Jack is one of my favorite stories in there, which is just flat-out comedy. Um, in terms of movies, well, I feel like movies do comedy and horror more than books do, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Return of the Living Dead, I love, which is apparently a comedy horror. I mean, American Werewolf in London, which mm-hmm. I think is enormously sad, I guess is considered comedy horror. Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, uh, oh, God, what is it? Uh, Dale and Tucker versus Evil, which I really, Amazing. really enjoyed a lot. Yeah, <laughs> Cabin in the Woods, which yep. I find tremendously grim and dark. I mean, it is a comedy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's sort of all the standard ones. There's, there's like, nothing new here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I found Hostel pretty funny, uh, even okay. though it's not. I mean, it's um, it's funny and it's not i mean the sense of humor is really bleak and morbid mm-hmm. um i just find life kind of absurd and funny and so i feel like the horror movies i like feel like life which means they feel gross and horrible and also kind of funny and absurd well especially with like a movie like hostile when you ratchet up the the gore and ridiculousness up to 30 on the up to 10 valve it gets funny in and of its own right because it's just so absurd yeah. at that point well, and that's the thing, right? I mean, if you apply the reality principle to horror enough, it always becomes ridiculous. Um, and so the trick is to ease up on the pedal before you get into the ridiculous zone, but when you're still in the interesting zone. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like the third act of Satanic Panic kind of hit that ridiculous zone and stayed oh, there yeah. in a good way. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely hits the ridiculous zone. I mean, that's that's one of those things where we were like, let's just take it all the way. You know, let's yeah. let's not, this is not a movie <laughs> that encourages moderation. No, that was one of the two I showed for my big Halloween movie night this past year and it got really oh, good nice. responses. Yeah, it was a good It did, time. oh good. Yeah, it was good. It was yeah. Good. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I, I have a hard time. Like, I don't reread my books, and um, except for We Sold Our Souls, which I'll reread some from time to time, mm-hmm. uh, because just because that's really personal to me. But I don't, I mean, they're all personal to me, but that one, for some reason, I don't know why. But I don't really reread my books. I don't, I've seen Mohawk once with an audience, and I've seen Satanic Panic once with an audience. And um, it was super educational both times to see mm-hmm. what people responded to. Like, it was like three years of film school in, in 90 minutes. <laughs> I'm bummed that I didn't get to see Mohawk with a full audience. I know it played at the Coolidge Theater near me and I missed it during its run through there. But the movie just, it just plays out so well. Like it just, it's, I don't know, it felt like a really well-written one. Yeah, Ted did a great job of that. And the thing that interested me about it is I realized like where people perk up in movies is where characters are interacting. When characters, like you can have cool set pieces and special effects and all that stuff, but people lean forward when it's two characters interacting. Like the whole scene with Haley and Ruby Modine uh, in the house where they're talking about the, the stuff and they're interacting, 
that's what leans people forward. In Mohawk, where um, Dio and the other characters are talking, that's where they get leaning forward. It's like people want to see other people interacting with people mm-hmm. more than anything. We're like, we're, like, we're like monkeys, you know? We love to see what other monkeys are doing. Yeah, and it's... I'm, I'm excited to see where you go from here, whether you're working with him again or not, or your own solo stuff. It sounds like you have a thousand irons on the fire. So there's so much material yeah. out there coming out to attack our eyeballs and earballs and all that fun stuff. Yeah. It's funny. It's um a little bit too much. Like I'm really <laughs> under the gun this month. I, I mean, I may have bitten off a little more than I can chew, but it's kind of like, I've got this tiny little office. What else am I doing with it? Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you working still. Glad to see that there are things coming out. I'm excited to see when your producers let you release more information about what's coming out next. Um, For the time being, anyone should be out there grabbing the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires because it's the vampire novel we need right now and the version of the vampire we need. It's taking that pretty vampire that's been kind of put out there from things like, this already sounds dated, but things like True Blood and Twilight. and It's still that pretty attractive sexual vampire but the gross gritty monster beneath it that I think we need. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Where can people follow you online? So yeah, everything lives at gradyhendrix.com. And the podcast is there. I mean, it's on Spotify and stuff, but you can get to it from there. Uh, All my dumb social media platforms, all that stuff, just gradyhendrix.com. It's simple and easy to use. (laughs) And also just before we wrap up, one thing I wanted to say really quickly is, um, one of the things that's been amazing to me during this pandemic is to look at all these brick and mortar independent bookstores or I was going to be doing my book tour, sort of pivot on a dime from being stores with doors where people walked in them to being online enterprises doing virtual events and home delivery and curbside pickup. And if you're going to spend a little book money or a little stimulus check money on some books, do it at your local independent bookstore. I love Amazon. Amazon's great. I buy from Amazon all the time, but Amazon's going to be here next year and your local bookstore may not. This is really rough times for everyone. They're almost all doing home delivery or shipping. Um, And, you know, most of them are using a platform called bookshop.org to do their shipping fulfillment. And I just bought a couple of things in there and literally I bought a book that was $6 more on bookshop than it would be on Amazon. But that $6, I look at it is the price, sort of a surcharge to have neighbors, to keep bookstores around. I mean, in my hometown, our local bookstore went out of business in the the late 80s. And it took 15 years for another independent bookstore to open up there. That's a long time to be without a bookstore. And these places, when they go away, they don't come back. So if you've got some money, you want to buy a book, spend just a couple of extra bucks and do it at your local independent bookstore or through bookshop.org. It is absolutely worth it. And we have a wide array of different ones to pick from the area. We had mentioned both the, uh, we mentioned the Greenhand bookstore earlier. There's the Brookline Mm -hmm. Booksmith, Brighton, Cambridge near here in New England. There's so many to pick from. So please go online and find the one that you have either shopped at in the past or the one that you remember going to try to find any local one that is selling online. Because like he just said, there are so many now that are selling through and it's, they're independently owned. It's a lot of times it's one person running the ship and it is really important to support them. Otherwise they won't be here when this is all over. What is your personal well said, favorite? Sir. Thank you. What is your personal favorite bookstore nearest you? 
Oh, you know, it's funny. In New York, we, we've got some independent bookstores, but they're huge, like the oh. Strand and stuff. There's the Mystery Bookshop, which is great. I find myself doing either Blue Bicycle or Buxton Books, which, is in my, which are both in my hometown of Charleston. And actually talking to you reminds me that I should buy something from the Green Hand because that is a one-of-a-kind bookstore. And if you're in LA, The Last Bookshop and Book Soup are both amazing. Mysterious Galaxy and San Diego. I mean, there's so freaking many great bookstores out there. Absolutely. And so I'm hoping to see that all of them make it through this hard time. I have bought a handful of books from a couple of different local stores myself. We'll be placing an order with the green hand very soon. Um, but I do want to thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to record this with me and just chat back and forth. And it's your books have guided me through a lot of difficult times myself, and I'm glad to support and keep helping out as they keep coming out. Oh, dude, thanks for the support. Thanks for saying that. That really means a lot, actually. Of course. Well, again, thank you. I really hope you appreciate the show and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. And send me the link when it goes up. Oh, I will. Of course. Take care, man. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And again, Grady, thank you so much for being on. His podcast, The Super Scary Haunted Homeschool, is streaming now on all major platforms and is everything you'd want and expect from a formal vampire education. His second episode just came out today on May 23rd and was a thankful reminder to me that I own Rigor Mortis on Blu-ray sitting on my shelf over there and I've never actually watched it, so I'll get to that soon. Um, of the things I didn't expect to learn from this interview is that I've been mispronouncing proboscis for as long as I have, and it is in fact pronounced proboscis, so learn something new every day. Uh, one of the submitted questions that I got recently was, am I excited for Lovecraft Country? Thank you, Ryan, for submitting that question, and yes, I'm very excited. As I've stated before on this show, I love a lot of what Lovecraft created, but despised a lot about the author and his racist and xenophobic ideology. So to see others pick up on what was good in his work and run with it is really exciting. And to circle back to discussing book covers and art, Jared Tyler's cover for the Lovecraft Country novel by Matt Ruff rocks. It has that pulpy vintage feel that I love. To have the story really stab right into the meat of Lovecraft's racism is almost poetic. I'm excited to see what Misha Green brings to the show as the showrunner. She worked on things like Heroes and Sons of Anarchy and has a whole huge list of other titles in IMDb. Um, and with Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams producing, there's a significant amount of skill behind the camera. Now for a bit of horror trivia. Which iconic director featured their 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88 in just about each one of their directorial features? First of you to comment the answer on today's post on either Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, I'll send a delightful little scare package to. Now you can submit your questions or follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All of those are at SlashInningsPod. You can email me directly at SlashInningsPod at gmail.com. Please send me your thoughts, opinions, indie movies you love, crazy book art, or your art. I'd love to see it. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with one of my favorite Halloween-slash-horror-centric musicians. Until then, thanks for listening, and keep it creepy.